1: Welcome to Let's Talk, a monthly podcast where we discuss issues pertaining to advanced practice nurses. I am your host, Wendy Carson Smith. Today, our guest is Kathy Boris Hale from the DC Board of Nursing. Kathy Boris Hale has brought significant changes to nursing practice and healthcare delivery over the course of her 35-year career. Currently, she is nurse specialist for discipline and practice for the DC Board of Nursing. Kathy is also a Director-at-Large on the Board of Directors for the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, an organization that promotes regulatory excellence for patient safety and public protection. Well, good afternoon, Kathy. I am so excited about doing this.
0: Good afternoon, Wendy. I'm so glad to be here.
1: So, please explain to our audience exactly what the National Council of State Boards of Nursing is and its role in relationship to the individual boards of nursing and other nursing organizations.
0: Oh, I'd be happy to do that. Well, first of all, uh, we'll shorten it to NCSBN because the National Council (laughs) of State Boards of Nursing Nursing is a mouthful. Amen, amen. So, We'll call it NCSBN going forward, which it's a not-for-profit organization, first of all, that really grew out of the American Nurses Association, which had a council of state boards of nursing. NCSBN celebrated its 40th year uh, this year. Um, They were founded in March 15, 1978, so at the August meeting. We had to celebrate our ruby anniversary. But the organ, there were members that really thought that we, an organization, needed to branch off of the ANA, as the ANA really represented the professional nurse. They wanted to look at how did we represent the public and ensure public health, safety, and welfare. So NCSBN actually grew from the American Nurses Association, and really is a vehicle to help all the state boards of nursing to bring about change and improve the way we regulate nursing and, and develop regulatory excellent practices that we can share worldwide.
1: Now, in addition to talking about what NCSBN does, just mention some of the differences with the individual boards, only because a lot of people think that if you go to one board of nursing, they're all the same way. And you and I know that each board has its own personality and is catered to what that state really needs.
0: And I think you said it right there. Boards of nursing are as independent and separate as every state and territories that make up the United States of America. So even though when we cross the border into, leave D.C. into Maryland, Virginia, which we all do very often, Mm -hmm. and we don't even think about, we're in another state we're so used to doing it. The rules and the regs are very different. And I think a lot of nurses and advanced practice nurses really don't consider that. We think a nurse is a nurse is a nurse wherever he or she may be practicing. And that is not the case.
1: Now tell me, how did you get involved with NCSBN and what are your responsibilities as a national board member?
0: It started with me being involved with the Board of Nursing, and I'm going to tell you that was a really interesting story. I, like many nurses, as a staff nurse, I'm a native Washingtonian, uh, went to nursing school here in the district, uh, started working at Providence Hospital. I thought that State Board of Nursing was just to get your license. They just <laughs> That's how I took my test, and they cranked out a license. That's all I knew. As I became an administrator late in I guess it was in the late 2000s, I got that call that most nurse administrators never want to get, and that was that a patient had died from a medication error. Mm. That resulted in me being called before the Board of Nursing as a chief nursing officer to discuss, (laughs) oh, yes, about the orientation of new nurses, how this era occurred, I had to bring the CEO accompanied and the organization lawyer accompanied It was one of the scariest moments, I think, in uh, beyond uh, just dealing with uh, an era, a medication error that resulted in the death of a patient, which, as you know, happens every day across this country, but it's something as a chief nurse, you don't ever want that happening on your watch. So I was called before this 11 board members, the head of the Department of Health, and it was like a tribunal. Uh, But I was ready to answer their questions and talk about safe practices and problems and how medical errors happen, and it kind of led to me learning more about a just culture because it's very easy to just blame a nurse.
1: Mm -hmm. versus a
0: process.
1: Exactly.
0: And I had to talk about the the Swiss cheese model and how errors happen and how we looked into how this error happened. So that's how I got exposed to the Board of Nursing. Next thing I know, I was attending meetings. The next thing I know, I got appointed to be a member uh, because I live in the district. You do have to live in the district to be on the Board of Nursing. In most states, that's the requirement. Next thing I know, I became chair in 2012. I was appointed chair of the board, and that's how I became a member of the National Council. So as the chair member, I was invited to attend our annual and mid-year meetings, and I've been swept up in it ever since, Wendy.
1: It's a great organization. And they do a lot of good work. So... Tell me a little about the databases NCSBN maintains, how those databases are used to support regulation of nursing.
0: Well, I guess the most important one that your listeners will be interested in is nurses.com, which is spelled N-U-R-S-Y-S. Mm-hmm. And nurses is an online verification program for, that we use for endorsement. It is a way of sharing information from state to state in a way that anyone can verify a nurse license. So it's a licensure database as well as a disciplinary database. And it has all the information from the states sent to this repository with their permission.
1: So in lieu of us having to go back to all of the schools of nursing every time you apply for a nursing license, Once you finish that initial license now, you can just go, they go into Nurses Database.
0: Exactly. Now, there still are a few states that have decided that are not a member. So, with those, you still have a paper application process. And what that really does is just increase your wait time. There are different fees that states can charge you to verify your license. So... Uh, There there are just a few. The the goal of NCSBN really is to get all state boards involved. Sometimes that is a legislative matter. Often it's a financial matter that's kind of beyond the board's control. But for the most part, we hope to have everybody on board soon.
1: Now, real quickly about the things that happen at these meetings, because I love that mid-year meeting.
0: I think most people like that because that's our education meeting. Our annual meeting in August is where we have the delegate assembly where voting takes place and when we're looking at, for example, moving, um, uh, changing the the nurse compact that I think we're going to talk a little bit about later, those usually happen at the annual meeting. At the mid-year meeting, we have great topics of discussion that come up, and I remember one of my early mid-year meetings is when the whole notion about marijuana was introduced. And interestingly enough, that discussion was presented by a physician. And I thought, well, isn't this interesting that we have a physician presenting at our nurses' meeting? And I remember being quite vocal uh, about, we need to be knowledgeable in speaking about this, because I thought it was maybe a little biased uh-huh. in the presentation, which happens
1: Of course. sometimes.
0: And what came out of that discussion and the evaluation from that meeting ended up what is now our guidelines um, that we have regarding medical marijuana. Our first
1: Mm -hmm.
0: kind of shot at this very, very interesting and ever-changing discussion about medical marijuana and its use in this country.
1: Just a little plug for NCSBN, I think it's ncsbn.org. Those mid-year meeting presentations are online. So if anybody wants to go out and really look at them or listen to them, they are very interesting, very well-researched topics, and they're very relevant to what's happening today. I went in and did a review of one on the non-compete clause, and I loved it.
0: There's a lot of good information, a lot of good information on NCSBN website about standards, a lot of information on discipline. It's great for your listeners to check the site out and see. It's a wealth of knowledge that, you know, a lot of us who are even on the board didn't know about it.
1: Now, tell me some more about the medical marijuana, because I have been working with the nurses down in Virginia, and they are working Mm -hmm. on their guidelines right now for advanced practice nurses to work with on medical marijuana. So tell me more about NCSBN's guidelines and exactly what they cover.
0: Well, I'll start with a couple of years. I want to say it's been two years, two or three years that NCSBN put together a committee just to look at developing regulatory guidelines because there were none. These are, again, our in quotation guidelines because this is something that's very different in, in every state, how people look at it, as we know that it's still illegal federally. But we wanted to give state boards of nursing and schools of nursing some set of guidelines on how are we going to address the concerns of our members to inform them about the conditions about marijuana or what we call cannabis and to try to synthesize all that information that there was out there. Now for researchers and for nurse researchers, this is difficult because we are used to, we want to see where it's been studied, researched, gone through all the proper channels and we just don't have that in the states because it was a schedule one and it was not researched the way we're used to with other drugs. So nurses were at a quandary, what do we do with this? So it's moving, legislation is moving faster than the knowledge that we have. Now, there's thousands of years of anecdotal knowledge about cannabis that's out there. There's a lot of places where your listeners can get information. Um, I'll plug the American Cannabis Nurse Association, great resource, very, very good reference and, and literature on their site.
1: I know there's a lot of information out there. Like you said, a lot of it is anecdotal and not particularly well researched. But I want to know, how do you all envision nurse practitioners developing competencies when they're already out practicing related to this drug? Because I don't know of any school of nursing that taught this five years ago.
0: They sure didn't. So this is something that Individual practitioners are going to have to take upon themselves to obtain the knowledge necessary if they're going to be treating patients who are using medical marijuana, or and that's whether they they are authorized to make a recommendation. Because remember, APRNs no physicians can write a prescription. Mm-hmm. It's a right in most states. It's called mm-hmm. a recommendation. It's not a prescription. Uh, They're not prescribing and pharmacies are not dispensing, but you do want to know, at least understand the types of cannabis, how it's grown, how it impacts on the body, how it works to know about the endocannabinoid system and about cannabis pharmacology. And There is a wealth of information on our site. As you know, we published the guidelines in the Journal of Nursing Regulation in the July 2018 issue. Uh, We did a scientific literature review, nursing implications you'll find there, nursing care of the patient who's using, the questions that you would want to ask those patients. Uh, And if you're going to be one, if you're interested in certifying patients to use medical marijuana for a qualifying condition, you need to understand how that works. This is a plant that's grown in the field uh, in different uh, different areas, in different distribution sites, and they're not the same. We're talking in general. This is not coming out of Libby. It's not the same. And the patient is going to have to understand that they are really in control of how much they consume, how quickly they use it, the amount, what to expect. So they need to be up at least to be as learned as they can by doing that. And research. they need to be
1: learned, too, on the difference between medical marijuana, cannabis, and recreational cannabis.
0: And absolutely. And especially that, in the, for example, in the district where, and, and, and most places that have even with medical marijuana, people are allowed to grow plants. People are allowed to share their plants. And depending on the condition in which that plant is grown, it can be exposed to a fungus. So patients need to understand that if you are going to grow your own, you know you need to know what you're doing and have the right atmosphere. And it takes a lot to do this. Um, it is quite. It is fascinating. It is a huge industry, as you know, uh, and it's ever. It's ever. It is changing faster than we can keep up with it. So this isn't anything you're going to read and just be, okay, I know everything I need to know about cannabis.
1: Now, how are the teachers developing their knowledge to teach the students about it? Because I know they're teaching it now.
0: Yes. And and that was part of our, in looking at the guidelines and speaking with educators to look at marijuana education for a pre-licensure program. And in those guidelines, we gave some suggestions on what they needed to cover and, and you know basics about the plants, the difference between uh, 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 the the two different types of plants, how it's consumed, how it affects the body. Most people are never taught about the endocannabinoid system. They don't know what that is, um, but that we all mammals have it. it the, we you do. Know, <laughs> we do. You have uh, you have one, Wendy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you have receptors and it's those receptors in your endocannabinoid system that receive the the chemicals that come from the cannabinoids that come out of the plant. And that's when you hear people talk about THC and mm-hmm. and you hear about C B D. And those are the things that your receptors pick
1: up. I'm going to ask some of my, my listeners if you teach this, to let me know if you're interested in talking about it. Yeah. Because I, I just think that um, we need to share that knowledge.
0: Absolutely. One of the things I'd like to do, Wendy, is to do a Cannabis 101 with the Board of Nursing and maybe one of our board meetings to introduce people to cannabis about the guidelines that NCSBN has put out. But kind of a little crash course about what you need to know, what you need to ask, where you can find reliable information about research that's being done today. People need to understand the regulations in the district or in their state. We haven't Mm -hmm. even talked about nurses who or practitioners who use medical marijuana themselves for whatever reason and how that is handled, how that might affect you. Let's see if you're working in an acute care facility, uh, depending on whether you inhale or whether you're using a tincture, and if you have a random test and you are just come up positive, that does not mean you're impaired. It just means you're positive of having, TH, exactly. having THC in your system. Um, interesting uh, for because women have more fat on board usually. We can, you can keep THC is stored in fat. You could not have used in weeks, workout and have it released and come through your urine. So it's not cut and dry, Wendy.
1: I have seen, you know, I've been working in the home health industry. And I have been compelling our patients to let us know if they are using marijuana, either recreationally or medically, so that they can, so that the nurses can look at their other meds in coordination with that use. And it has been a most amazing journey because half the time they don't realize the need. And it's so very important for us to know so that we can know if their meds have been adjusted accordingly. Their doctor can know about their pain meds. Some of them don't use pain meds because they use marijuana. Correct. It is an interesting topic. And I think we need to make sure that we keep up with it because states are passing legislation quicker than I ever envisioned they would in this area. Yes, that that's very
0: true. Good assessment. I mean, even if you think about our normal questions that we ask patients, if we ask patients, do you use drugs, they might say no, <laughs> not even considering medical, thinking that that's an Ill- illegal drug. And so it's something to ask mm-hmm. people. And it's also the flip side of this is that sometimes we need to take our personal bias about something out of the equation so that we can be open to it. You might not agree with using that course of treatment, um, just like Mm -hmm. some people don't agree in using chemotherapy. Some people want to be a a naturopath and don't want to take prescriptive medicine. We all grew up in that don't use drugs, drugs are bad. We grew up in that era, a lot of us who are practicing now, uh, and it's difficult for many people. And I don't think we need to make everybody believe that this is right or wrong, but you do need to understand if your patient wants to use this modality to treat whatever condition they want to treat, we need to understand that. And we need to make sure that they understand how it works, why it works, what, how to report back to their physicians which is very important. If, if you're the practitioner and you have recommended this, you want your patient to come back and to tell you how that made their pain feel or how that made that spasticity, is that better, or the inflammation, whatever the case may be. So we have to teach them, too, how to communicate back and forth about this
1: now tell us more about the current state of the compact (laughs) give me a little quick and dirty on the compact
0: okay quick and (laughs) there it
1: is quick and dirty in the
0: compact oh my goodness it is for those who don't know it is 31 states involved in the compact and what this does is to allow nurses to be able to move from state to state and practice without holding an individual license in every state so for example years ago, if you were a travel nurse, you would have to have a um, Texas license, Oklahoma license, Arkansas license. If you were going to Hawaii, write a Hawaii license, quite expensive. And we know how long it takes some time to get a license, right? And it can for in areas that don't have a lot of practitioner and not all, you know, for people that are in rural huge areas where we need to get health providers out there, it can really impact care. So the purpose was to to improve the way we deliver nursing care and the way we can cross boundaries. So right now, 31 members in the state, in in the member state compact. The district is not. And the only reason that we're not is very simple is that probably 95% of the nurses that with D.C. license don't live in the district. So that's really just about revenue. We wouldn't have the funds to run by doing that. So if you look at a state that has 250,000 nurses, that's a that's different versus a place that has 20,000. So that's the only reason. However, the district um, when we did the vote in the council, we did vote to support the compact.
1: This morning I did another show on, called Smart Practice, mm-hmm. and I discussed reforming America's health system through choice and competition, a publication of this new administration. Mm-hmm. And they actually recommended utilization of compacts yeah. for um, licensees. And I said that um, you and I both know it's a good thing if it is done well, but also you got to be able to regulate and discipline practice. Correct. So my concern is that when when somebody is practicing in Maryland and they have a problem, a serious problem, they jump to Delaware and then they jump to Pennsylvania before they can get discipline. Mm-hmm. How do you manage that in that compact setting?
0: I think the compact would probably manage it better than we're doing it now. So first of all, the compact is going to have uniform licensure requirements, so that we know everybody in that compact has a set of minimum requirements, regardless of their home state. They all have their criminal background checks to make sure that they're eligible for a multi-state license. What I find, the reason why we have unsafe practitioners, Wendy, is not so much from the boards of nursing. It's from the organizations that they work for that don't report them to their state board.
1: And the managers in HR departments are mandated to report them.
0: That is absolutely in right. In state law. that is All right.
1: state law requires that.
0: So what we'll find, we'll have practitioners, and we'll learn around the third or fourth and look, at they've been through three hospitals, or they've been through three or four agencies. They've been through three or four home health agencies before it got to the board. You know, we've been working hard here in the district, and I, I'm proud to say that I've seen a big shift here, but that's a big problem. And remember, we talked about the database. With nurses, when we have somebody that is really unsafe, that's going to hit nurses, and that's going to get pinged out to all the boards of nursing. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. going to get flagged. So we have a way of very quickly reporting that. So I think you won't see so much the folks that are jumping from state to state to state and being unsafe and putting people at risk.
1: Now, do you all report to the National Practitioner Data Bank in the HIPTI, or do they report to you all? Yes, we I do. Yes, that.
0: we do report. We do report
1: them now. Okay, because then that's a federal data bank that has gotten better over time. Yes. Because they have cleaned up a lot of their reporting so that you can better see what's happening.
0: Exactly. Exactly, yes, we do. And we're, we reconcile that on a monthly basis. That report goes out to the executive director so they know that we have reported that to the database, what's appropriate. And nurses, NCSBN, compares what we put in nurses to what's in the practitioner base so we have a safety net to make sure that we're keeping the public safe
1: now tell me a little about ncsbn and the international regulators because i see they're now engaged with international regulators and in nursing practice issues and concerns and that got me real excited
0: yeah, well good cause i would say well there's nothing little about it we could talk about that all day mm-hmm. but i know we won't well as you know we are in it's easy to connect Uh, you know, across state lines and across the globe, across the waters. And so this world is more connected than we ever thought. And that was part of our vision for NCSBN was to advance regulatory excellence around worldwide. We have put together a global atlas that actually taps into all the countries with their regulatory bodies, so a nurse going to France, from the United States and wanted to know what the requirements were, can see what it's like to work in France and vice versa. So, you know, we want to be a resource for the regulation of nursing around the world and share regulatory excellence because we're all moving around and as you know we also have a lot of foreign-born, foreign-trained nurses who want to come and practice in the U.S.
1: How do you all interact with CGF&S? Seeing their their responsibility has been foreign trained nurses in the U.S. previously.
0: Well, every board of nursing has just like my concentration is practice and discipline. We also have a, a an area for education, uh, and for the district we have Dr. Jenkins, who is heads up that department. She works closely with S to make sure that nurses who are coming from other countries that that when they say they have an RN from Ethiopia is that RN degree is their curriculum the same as what an RN in the US would be or is that more comparable to an LPN which is very important so that when people are that they're sitting for the right exam because our training and curriculums are not universal so an RN in one country is not or an LPN it may not be the same in another. And we know it's not. So it's very important that we make sure we understand that curriculum. That's what we work with CGFNF to do.
1: And does NCSBN work with CGFNF yeah. when they are, okay. Yeah,
0: we consider them a, part, a partner. Yes, they're doing
1: exciting. That's wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Finally, what do you feel nurse practitioners need to know about NCSBN? I know that's a, a weighty question, but I wanted to give you flexibility.
0: Well, I think all nurses need to know about the contribution that NCSBN is making to the practice of nursing. You know, we don't actually think about NCSBN when we think about pre, well, pre-licensure except with the NCLEX and how many people that get their license and how we keep up that the testing is appropriate for the practice that's going on today. As you know, probably I couldn't even pass the test today, <laughs> and I will never let my I know it's a new test. It's a, it's new, a test. new
1: test now. It's a new test almost every time it's taken.
0: It is. And that, and now it's computer generated and it's designed to make sure that this person can think critically. And so we do a lot of that stuff again, but the, I think, with regards to developing standards and um, the development of the collaborative efforts of what we're doing across the country, the way we deliver healthcare, uh, we are using an old hundred-year-old model for nursing licensure that's changing. Uh, we are doing telehealth; nurses are involved in that, and our role is expanding rapidly. And one way to really stay on top of and to be to get information at your fingertips, we can. They'll email the nurse. Anybody, if you sign up, to let you know what's going on legislatively in your state and on a federal level and a local level. So I can't see anybody uh, worth their salt not knowing about NCSBN and having that app on their telephone.
1: I think they should have it on their telephone too. And so if you don't pick it up in the Play Store online, go to www.ncsbn.org and I'm sure they have directions for you so you can get your app. Kathy, thank you so very much for joining us today. This has been delightful, and I have enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you, Wendy. Next month, we're going to talk with Dr. Beverly Malone. Beverly is going to talk about the history of advanced practice. I felt it was important for me to bring her on and just have a good, thorough discussion of the history because she was so integrally involved in how advanced practice evolved
0: and I'll be sure to tune in.
1: One of the strongest things that I think she did was that she got everybody corralled in together into developing a core based competency for all advanced practice nurses. So I'm excited about
0: I'm that. I'm excited to hear that too. That's great.
1: If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive rating on iTunes. Let's Talk is a part of Carson Company and Nurse Consultancy. If you'd like to know more about Carson Company or the Let's Talk podcast, please visit us at carsonco.net. That's C A R S O N C O.net. You can also find us on our Facebook page. Again, join us next month for another episode. And thank you again, Kathy Borsell.
0: Thank you. Happy holidays, everyone.
1: Happy holidays to you too.